Welcome to the Dream Mason Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. A Dream Mason is a person who's brave enough to declare they have a dream and committed enough to do the work to build it. I know we all have a Dream Mason inside of us, and my dream for this podcast is to support all of us by giving us a glimpse inside the hearts and minds of leaders, creators, and innovators to help us unleash our inner Dream Mason. Because your dreams don't build themselves. I am thrilled to share today's podcast with you. It's not every day that I get to sit down and interview and have a candid, authentic, and personal conversation with somebody I look up to, respect, and believe in, and have the honor of actually calling my coach. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Mark Hunter. He's a master certified coach with over 23 years of experience as a professional coach. He's the founder and president of Pinnacle Coaching, an international business executive coaching company. He has led accomplishment coachings, leadership and coach training programs on the East Coast for more than 10 years and is a member of its executive team. And as the CDO, he is responsible for its corporate partnerships and development of innovative delivery methods for its coach training. And if that wasn't impressive enough, Mark is also the author of the book, The Brink, How Great Leadership is Invented. Not only is Mark someone who has impacted my leadership, coaching practice, relationship with myself, and my personal development, I'm proud to say that Mark embodies what it means to be a man and is one of the most powerful and committed heart-based leaders I have ever met. Mark and I discuss beating the odds and not allowing the environment you grew up in to determine where you end up. We also get into what happens after you've worked so hard to accomplish a dream and then realize that you aren't happy or fulfilled. What do you do next? We talk about how Mark traveled around the world for one year with no plan and what that generated and made possible for him in his life. We talk about creating new dreams and building them as well as we get into topics like creating home anywhere, building relationships, learning to be present. What do you do when you discover that marriage might be the thing that you want, as well as causing leadership from vulnerability in others. I know that you guys are gonna love this interview. I know that you're gonna take a ton away from it. So let's get to it. I am psyched to introduce you to Mark Hunter. Hey, Mark, thanks for being here. Hey, Alex, good to be here, thanks. Yeah, I'm... um, I'm excited and I'm also a little nervous. People uh, that are listening will found out in the introduction that you are my coach and you are somebody that I very much look up to, admire and respect. And I don't know that there's a lot of men in my life that I can really pinpoint and say that about. So there's a little nervousness on my side over here because I really want you, you know, I really want people to get something from this conversation. And I also want people to see you like I do. Wow. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. I would love to, you know, hear from you really, you know, besides being someone who, you know, is a coach, is a leader, trains leaders, an author, what else would you want people to know about you who have no idea who you are to, to kind of get this conversation started? It's a great question. You know, I'm a, <laughs> I think those are things that, that have a lot to do with uh, kind of what I do. Um, you know, who I am is a, is a husband and a brother and a son and aspiring father. <laughs> and, um, 
and a dog lover. You know, we've got four dogs and uh, one of them is a puppy who you'll probably hear uh, voicing his opinion in the background at some point. <laughs> but, um, but the, though that's, that's more of, of who I am on those things. I'm also an athlete. I, uh, I'm a CrossFit athlete and I'm pretty passionate about all the things I just listed. And, and then, and then a number of other things too. So those are the other things I think I'd want people to know about me because it, it those things really inform what I do as a coach and as a leader and as an author and, and such. I didn't, and now I just learned something. I didn't know you were an aspiring father. Yes. Yes. My wife and I are, uh, have decided that we want to start a family. And so that's a, it's oh. a new declaration for us this year. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been a long process of making sure that that's what we both wanted. Uh, it wasn't really a timing or money thing so much as a, uh, making sure that that's something that both of us were 100% committed to. That's awesome. I didn't realize. Yeah. I, I had, I had the impression that that was something you guys didn't want. So that's, ah, yeah. that's cool to hear it here for the first time, your childhood and like where you grew up in the time period, it's not predictable that you'd be here and being the person that you are. Is that fair to say? You know, that is fair to say. Yeah. Um, it's not predictable. A lot of things aren't predictable from that environment. Um, and <laughs> this is probably you, one of the least predictable. <laughs> yeah. Will you share, will you share? I don't want to, I didn't want to tell, I think it's, it's cool to hear you describe, you know, your childhood, the way you shared it with me. Will you share that? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in, um, in Brooklyn, New York in the seventies and eighties when, um, when Brooklyn was, uh, was suffering from a, a lot of crime and, the neighborhood we lived in was not a very nice neighborhood and it was, there was a lot of crime around us. The household was, was safe and a lot of love for my parents and for my brother and I, but you know, outside the house and high school and, and all those things were, um, it, it was a, it was a very unsafe sense of the, of the environment around us that we had. And there's just, you know, a lot of things around us that was going on that, that didn't have it seem like it would be predictable that, that, as especially as an African-American male that I would be um, here where I am today as a coach, author, leader, uh, you know, at, at the age of 47. You told me uh, the story about your mom teaching you guys about gunshots and backfiring. Mm. And I love the way you told it because of how normal it was for that world and that environment. Will you, will you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. My, um, you know, the back in the, and I'm going to date myself here, but the, Back in those uh, in those days, cars used to backfire, and um, it doesn't really happen anymore because of the way cars are made now. But the sound of a car backfiring reminded me of gunshots, and so when I'd hear a car backfire, I would get nervous. And but my brother and I both, and so my mother um, would uh, would re- remind us of the difference between a gunshot and a, and a car backfiring in the way that a, a mother might teach their kids how to cross the street by looking both ways. Uh, you know, it was very um, undramatic. You know, she would ask, you know, while we were going to bed, for example, oh, what's that sound? Oh, that's a, that's a car backfiring, right. And what if it was a gunshot? And she would tell us that if it is a gunshot to lay on the floor because we lived in a brick building and it was, um, that would be below the window line. And she said it in a way that wasn't alarming. You know, she said it, in, like I said, in a way that, would, that, that she would have taught us across the street. So it really was something that was very matter of fact. And in uh, that way, it was normalized for us. So we learned it but we weren't really distracted by or taken out by it. Um, and, and that's really the, 
that's you know I think that's what was required really as a as a parent in that environment to to be able to teach your kids without freaking them out every time you taught them something. Yeah, when you told me that, it made me think back to when you know I was growing up and it was like look both ways. Hey, if if an adult offers you candy or something, like you don't you know those kind of like traditional things that you hear about. Mm-hmm. But it actually expanded my mind to think about everywhere else in the world. So that was your experience. It was super normal. Nothing weird about it in the place you grew up. And if you had grown up in a country that maybe didn't have water or clean water, the experience of your day would have been like, hey, we got to walk five miles to go carry water or something. And that would have been super normal and, and, and predictable that somebody might not have been able to, you know, their experience of life would be very different based on that. And yet it's so normal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it would have been the same kind of thing where, you know, the environment kind of dictates what you're taught. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the, the lessons kept me alive. I don't relate to that as a sad story so much as a, a very flat story about how we teach each other things. And um, you're right. If we lived in a, in a place where there's no electricity or no running water, we would just be learning other lessons, none of them better or worse. Yeah, nobody's luring somebody away with candy in a place that doesn't have clean water or electricity. <laughs> Probably not happening. Maybe, yeah, yeah. When you were, when, so when you were growing up and you were in that world, what did you actually dream about then? You know, for a long time, um, I I really learned not to have too many big dreams um, as a kid. I really learned to sort of be careful about thinking too far ahead. Um, there were a lot of statistics about, you know, growing up in that environment and, and, and that likely, you know, getting to my age wasn't very probable. So, um, but I met some people along the way, my best friend from high school, um, some teachers I had and my parents, of course, who really were, um, were clear to me that, that I could do more. And so when I, once I started looking down that road, things I dreamt about were being a banker. You know, I mean, I wanted to, my, both my parents were bankers and, <laughs> Um, and, and I, I, I thought that I really wanted to do that. It looked like what they were doing and it looked, you know, basically great. Also, let's face it. I mean, in the eighties in New York, there wasn't, I don't know of anybody professionally who didn't want to work on wall street. <laughs> it was the cool thing to do. Um, and so that was what I dreamed. I was really being a, a professional and working in finance. If you had to look back, what was the thing that had you essentially beat the odds and escape the poverty and violence where I'm sure you can tell me stories about so many people that you know that it actually went the complete opposite way. Yeah. I mean, one thing it's tricky. Like I think that it it all hinged on, on how I related to the fear of those statistics. You know, those, those statistics scared me. I mean, obviously. Um, And I think at first, my first reaction was that of a lot of my peers, which was, well, screw it, you know, um, uh, you know, let's, let's just live and have fun now and see what happens. And I think that what evolved from that was a relationship to that fear where I became clear that I wanted to beat it. So it was really a competitive sort of fear-based reaction that had me, I would say, beat those odds. Plus, I had a lot of support. You know, my parents loved me. Both of them went to college. My mother went to college. Um, after I was born. So I got to see her go through it. I mean, I was little, but I still got to see her. and I was aware of her being a student. So there was a, there was a sense of some future that was possible because I'd seen them do it. Um, and 
because I was, I was afraid. And I turned that, of that fear into some anger and competitiveness, quite frankly, <laughs> at the time, it's really what it was. Uh, the that idea of possibilities. So that's what I got from what you just said is, yeah, there was fear, but some for some amazing reason, and maybe luck, you know, who knows what it is, we can't explain everything. But that idea that your parents were able to keep possibility alive, versus yes, yes. no possibility, then the likely if you had the fear without the possibility, you'd be like, all the people that said, screw it. True. That's absolutely right. That's right. And it was, you know, they, they actually was reminded regularly to be that it's right to be. I mean, you have some things to be afraid of. There's nothing wrong with fear. It's just a question of what you're going to do with it. And that was something I learned from um, athletic coaches, from teachers and my parents at that age that, you know, you, you got choices here. And then even as a 15 year old kid, you've got choices to make and you make them every minute of every day. So those were lessons that, yes, possibility kept um, was kept alive and, and what got created from it was kept alive because uh, fear wasn't left by itself because of by itself it would have had me just say screw it. Two of the things I think I've learned most from you and not not in the like 10 minutes we've been talking right now but <laughs> is that that idea of choice is how powerful choice is and actually it's a it's something that we can wield like a weapon almost to get what we want or not get what we want and, and vulnerability, masculinity and vulnerability. But I'm glad you brought up choice because it's, it definitely resonates to hear you say it, where it comes from a lot. It's definitely changed my life. What, so we had the dream of wall street. What actually, so tell me what happened. How did that evolve? What actually went down? I did it. I, uh, I ended up graduating very high in my class from a, a not so great public high school in New York City. Um, I, you know, I think it was ranked 14th out of 780 students from my graduating class, and um, and got into a good school. Got to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and was a math and economics double major. And then I went to work in uh, in the reinsurance industry after school, um, and I was uh, basically a risk analyst. So I, I I got what I wanted for the most part. Um, and very quickly realized that I didn't enjoy it and I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> you know, I mean, up, up to that point, most of the dream had been about survivability and, uh, okay, now that I survived, now what? Um, I, I, there was for a few years there where I resigned myself to, well, you know, suck it up and deal with it because I got what I wanted. And, you know, a lot of people would love to have this and I'm going to make a good living, but, uh, over time, I realized that the unhappiness was starting to wear on me way too early. I mean, I was 25 and I was so unhappy that a girlfriend of mine at the time recommended to me, hey, you need to go talk to somebody. It doesn't sound like therapy so much as it sounds like a coach. And I didn't know what that was in 1995, but I went and saw a coach and here I am today because I had that conversation with him and really started talking about what I wanted separate from the pieces on the table in front of me that I already had. So that was really the conversation that opened my eyes. I didn't know, I also didn't know you were a risk analyst, which is hilarious and ironic being that now you dabble in a world that's all about possibility and often the things that you, I, and the world that we play in, uh, we, we challenge people to do or we do ourselves. The risk would be, you'd go, that's not smart, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Nice. Or I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. 
Uh, and that that's a um, that's an exercise to your point. That's an exercise in exactly what you're describing in, in leadership or in coaching, because you're, you're challenging people outside their comfort zone. But you're right. That's something that I analyze so as to minimize risk for the organizations I work for. Yeah, it's great how that works out, how that's where you were. And then when you took a shift, it, you, it almost went full circle or 180, I guess. So yeah. did you ever identify what was actually missing? Yeah, it was uh, it was leadership fundamentally. I, I didn't have a good sense of of what leadership meant, and in the way in which it, it played into my career or into the organization, it seemed like uh, what was missing was that it seemed like I was going to be doing more of what I was doing forever until I stopped. And there was no, I mean, yes, I could advance, but even the people that that advanced in the organization seemed like they were doing more of what I was doing. And I didn't get a sense of any growth or ownership in any of that. It really felt like, um, like I was pushing paper, quite frankly. And I didn't get anybody in the organization who could have this conversation with me that you and I are having now even. So there was nobody there to talk to me about what leadership or ownership meant in the organization, how, you know, how my career as a leader would evolve or what leader, leadership even would be defined as. I, there was just no words for that. There was no language for it there. Uh, it was really about getting there and doing your job. I mean, I think a lot of the mentality of the organization was about churning and burning. You know, get, get college kids, college graduates in there, um, work as hard as you can. And then, you know, at some point, they'll probably leave. And the ones that don't leave will stick around and get promoted. But that's, that's sort of what I found was missing was this sense of, you know, of ownership and leadership and who am I going to be as a leader and does it matter to them? I couldn't tell any of the answers to those questions. What was the question your coach asked you that had you change everything or hire him? You know, he asked me what I want and, and I, the question occurs as innocuous, right? I mean, you know, everybody's asked, been asked that question at some point and I gave him an answer that was pretty canned, quite frankly. I mean, I, I told them, well, you know, I want to be an SVP by this date and I want to uh, get a bigger co-op. I, I owned a place in Manhattan and I want to do, you know, I want to make an X, X amount of dollars and hit my bonus. And then I sort of, sort of had these goals that were, you know, pretty straightforward and clear. Okay. Um, and to everybody I talked to up to that point, that sounded great. I mean, it sounded in fact um, spectacular. <laughs> uh, and he, he did an interesting thing. He, he sort of sat across the table from me and let me go through all the answers I gave him. And he's like, okay, and why do you want all that stuff? And I had no answer to that question. <laughs> um, he's like, well, what do you want all that for? You know, what's, what's the, what's the thing that all that stuff means to you? And I had no answer to that, except that that's what I felt like. Ultimately I felt like I should be doing. So that's where I ended. That was, that was the, the conversation that got me hooked. Because in 25 years of life, nobody had asked me what I wanted in that context. They asked me what I wanted, and they were steering me in the direction of what they thought I should want, or they knew the answer to the question, so it was already rhetorical, because they, they were really looking for the, the canned answer inside the pathway that's led, you know, that, that, that my career would, hand, would, would follow. So that's, that was my experience of that, and that, that lunch changed everything for me. So then where did, I know, you know, from us talking, he propose the challenge to you around travel. And <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, I want to talk about that, but I want to actually first understand what gave you the courage to walk away from the life you were living? Because look, this, what you're t saying isn't, 
is not crazy and not unique, right? There's a million people out there. What is it like 80% of people don't like their jobs or don't like what they're doing, or maybe they do like their job, but they don't know what's next or they don't even know why. But you did something super unique, which was you actually left it a super successful career. You guys said you had the, co the, the, the co-op in Manhattan and you actually completely kind of walked away from all that. Yeah. It's an interesting question about you. You asked the question very specifically. You asked me what had me have the courage. Um, it's uh, the way you framed it is going to have me answer. It's very, very <laughs> because I don't know how much it was courage, but let's take a look because here's the answer. It was mostly that I was terrified of sticking around where I was any longer. Like I was terrified of becoming the people that I, that I was working for. And so I was more afraid of that than I was of lo losing that income. And that was, I guess you could say that things had gotten bad enough or things had gotten uncomfortable enough that I was willing to take the risk. Uh, so yes, there was some courage in there, but it was mostly that I was unwilling to keep doing what I was doing any longer. Like I, I think it, it was really uh, not a, uh, not a, an environment that was going to support me in a healthy way any going any further than I'd gone. Uh, I would have really had to let go of a lot of my, um, my goals and my dreams as a person that I'd uncovered with this coach suddenly. And that was something I was more scared of than I was <laughs> of actually uh, leaving and trying something else and risking it all. Is there anything that you would, you know, for people that, that are in this situation in their life and hear this conversation and maybe they're not all the way there. Maybe they're not capped out. Like I'm done. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to keep going forward the way it's going, but they know that it's not working. They know that it's missing. What would you offer them? Well, you know, leaving is, is sort of the, I, I guess you call it the nuclear option, right? I mean, it, it doesn't have to be leaving. It could be a, a series of options for reinvention, reinventing, uh, my role, uh, working in an area that I turns out I am committed to and I do like, um, reinventing my relationship to the company, finding somebody in the organization that's actually having a conversation about leadership or whatever it is you're committed to. A lot of these organizations nowadays are doing a lot of different things like that differently than they did back in 1995. So, you know, there's, there are options I think people have, including hiring a coach perhaps, um, to, to help answer some of those questions together. But but, but reinvention and, and reinventing the relationship to the organization and to your role in the organization are completely valid options that could have somebody have a very rewarding career without having to leave. If leaving becomes what they choose, then what I would suggest to them is, is to really be clear that, that the thing that they're leaving for be bigger than the thing that they're leaving. In other words, that they're leaving for something that's compelling, not just leaving to run away from the thing that's not so good at all. Yeah. The, the what's behind it instead of what's behind it. less. Yeah. Less about the choice than about where the choice is being motivated from. Yes. Yes. So this is a fun part of your, your story that I was obviously surprised to hear about when you shared it. So your coach challenged you to do what with your life? Well, it's funny. He asked me, you know, what, so, okay, you're going to leave your career. Like, it took me, by the way, it took me about five or six months to decide that I was actually going to leave. 
Um, and he said, and during that period of time, he said, so what are the dreams that you've always had? And I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to travel around the world, but eh, you know, everybody has that dream and whatever that doesn't, you know, nobody, nobody really does it. So um, I started listing some other more reasonable dreams, <laughs> um, you know, living in another state, uh, um, getting married, you know, there were some things that I had, I had sort of related to as going to be challenging for me, but weren't going to be impossible. So he listened to my whole list. He was really good at listening to me talk. <laughs> and, uh, and at the end he said, okay, let's go back to the first, that whole traveling around the world thing. And he said, by when? And I, you know, I was like, what do you mean by when? And he said, well, by when will you, will you leave and go travel around the world? And I didn't have an answer for that right away, but it ended up being, that was the challenge. He, he said, so the ultimate conversation ended up being that I was going to leave and travel around the world. And he challenged me not to just go do it by creating some big itinerary, um, but to really go and do a few things. Number one was to circumvent the world, not go someplace and come back. His whole, his big thing in that conversation was don't come back the way you came, so to speak. And that meant a lot of different things, but, but there was a physical representation of that. So the challenge was to head West you don't come back heading east. And that was that was sort of the biggest one because that meant that I, there was no sort of uh, change in your mind uh, a little bit a little bit into the trip. The other one was not don't know where you're going next until you get to the place you're headed. So in other words, I would I, the first thing I did was buy a ticket to Fiji. And I didn't know where I was headed after that until I got to Fiji, met some people there who had been to some cool places, and they ended up making some suggestions. And I chose where I was going to head next. And that's how I, that's how I traveled for that whole year uh, from place to place, not knowing how long I was going to be in any one place or where I was headed next. He also challenged me to, to stay in, in some third world countries, you know, not, not to travel sort of and stay at the Marriott or, or and hang out with other people <laughs> from, from the U.S., but to actually travel and, and live with, and, and live, you know, with, with people and, and stay with people and, and make friends and, and, and I did that too, which was really, really amazing. Um, but also that, uh, that I not know when I was coming back. And those were all things that had me completely outside my comfort zone. Because, hey, you know, a trip to Europe for five months, knowing when I have my ticket back, anybody can do that. But this, this was open-ended. It, it demanded that I let go of going back to New York as sort of the, my comfort zone and, and my, my sort of peace of mind. It also had me not be able to tell what steps were lay ahead of me between now and whenever. So I had no, um, no distraction with the circumstance of my itinerary or my return. I was really in that respect forced to be present and that included being present with how scary and uncomfortable all I was. Yeah. That's what I was getting from it is he, in a, in a very, he didn't ask you to be present, but the, the game you guys created together created, there was no alternative than being yes. present. Yes. There really was no alternative. Now at any point, if anything happened, I could come home, but there wasn't, there wasn't that sort of comfortable safety net. Um, nobody was expecting me to come home anytime soon. Uh, I didn't even say I was going to be gone for a year. I just said I was going to be going. And you know, you could imagine having these conversations with my family and friends and loved ones was equally uncomfortable because <laughs> it didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, here I am, uh, you know, at the time I was 28, and it didn't make a lot of sense to, you know, somebody who was successful and doing really well to uproot themselves and go do this thing. And 
you know, people made fun of me. Oh, you're going to go find yourself, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I had a lot of those, those interesting conversations and, and, and that was part of the challenge of it all was, you know, being with their reactions to me uh, and to my going. What was, and this is going to be, uh, uh, this is, could be, we could probably have a whole conversation about what I'm going to ask you, but for the simplicity of this conversation, maybe pick a cut one or two or whatever that you think fit. What was the biggest takeaways that you learned from that experience that actually apply to your life now? Yeah. Wow. Um, I guess the first one really is that there's no, there's no dream too big. <laughs> I mean, they don't get much bigger than that one. Um, so things like publishing my, my book back in 2014, starting my own practice, um, getting married, um, you know, living outside of New York city in Vermont with my wife, like these were all additional dreams that seemed big at the time. And, I was because of the way I handled that trip and the choice to go on that trip was able to, to jump on as opportunities rather than to hedge and negotiate with and put off down the road years after year after year. So that's one big thing was my relationship to, uh, to big challenges or big risks and dreams. Um, the other one is a sense of home. And this is, this is funny. Not many people have asked me about this one, but the, you know, when I left New York, I was the New Yorker who really didn't think there was a whole lot of reason to leave New York. <laughs> and, you know, for 25, 26 years was, uh, was really clear that New York was the center of my universe and that was home. Yeah, I grew up there, you know, and, and, I, and then I went back there after college and, and worked there and it, I, I knew it, it, was, it felt like part of my family in that respect. So traveling for a year like that in countries where I didn't speak the language, I couldn't read a sign, um, where I couldn't talk to anybody sometimes and then figuring out ways to make friends and, um, and, you know, and, and sit down and have conversations with people, even though we didn't speak the same language, uh, <laughs> and navigate, you know, foreign countries and, and, you know, places that, that didn't, you know, weren't safe. I mean, there were state department warnings on a lot of the countries I went to at the time. It just, it made me clear that home wasn't an address or a city, that home was something that I carried around inside myself. It was really an orientation to myself that, that had me um, really feel like home was something that I brought with me. It didn't matter where I was physically. I always felt at home. And that's something that's, that stuck with me. It has me be able to stand up in front of rooms full of people and, and feel, you know, quote unquote, at home, uh, even, when, even when the environment might not be so friendly. And that's, that's been a gift. Um, the other thing is that it's, it had me be able to create friends and family all over the place. I mean, I, I created friends, really deep lasting friendships out there while I was traveling. Uh, and some of them I, were really intense and, and, and meaningful. And then while we walked away, you know, like, Hey, great, you know, great knowing you and, and good luck with the rest of your travels and never talk to them again. So I also learned that relationship doesn't look one way. And you can have really meaningful connections with people without having to look like we think it tradi traditionally would look. You also did this before Facebook and Instagram, because now if you would, you were in some country and had that relationship, it'd be like, what's your Facebook? I think people would have a tough time, which would actually be a challenge, right? I think what you did is, is unique in that, like you could actually do it the same way today. And there's something valuable about walking away and never knowing. And That's there's right. something great about also being able to be connected. They're, they're, not one is better than the other. They're just different. But it has, is very unique, especially, you know, I'm basically 10 years younger than you growing up in a time where I've 
essentially grown up with social media to think yeah. like anyone I've ever met, I can find, which is a yeah. very, which is a super awesome thing for in some respects and very weird at other times because you can't actually get away from anyone or just have a relationship that begins and ends. I'm glad you bring that up because it, it really, I can't imagine doing that, that trip with Facebook and Instagram and my cell phone. I mean, it, part of the, part of the, the gift in it that was completely confronting at the time is that even internet access was spotty in some of these places. You know, there was an internet cafe, you know, two villages away that was a half day's travel. So I'd go once a week or something like that, just to email my family, tell them I was alive. <laughs> um, but forget phone service in a lot of these places that I was traveling. And that had me be present to being where I was and the experience of being there rather than, um, you know, taking the right Instagram photo or, you know, did I, did I post to Facebook today? All of which are, you know, val valuable platforms and tools now, but, but it really would have changed the experience that I had if I had access to those things. And if they were, you know, they were part of my trip, but I actually took, I had a, a regular old little camera, 35 millimeter film, and I would take pictures and I'd, you know, when I'd get to near an airport or something like that, a month later, I'd have a bunch of rolls of film and I'd dump them in a, um, in an envelope at a local UPS store and, uh, and mail them back to my dad. <laughs> so he was getting packages for me from all over the world with just film in it. And he'd go get the film, um, oh, that's so cool. and he'd share the, the physical photos with people that were in my family. But, you know, he, you can imagine, right. He's like, gets this package full of, of undeveloped film and he gets to go and, and find out where I've been and what I've been doing by looking at these pictures. Pretty cool um, to think about, you know, sharing your experiences with folks that way. And I've got, I've got huge boxes full of those uh, photos still that are, uh, that are pretty special. It actually sounds like <laughs> somebody might just rip this off right now, but whatever. It actually sounds like a w amazing way to, s to have a story be told simply through photos or like without knowing anything, right? Like for your dad, yeah. just to open those things up and, you know, he's obviously going to put his, his perspective on it, but to right. see your story through only photos, no explanation, no nothing. And he gets to decide what, you know, this journey is like for you. It's, that's such a, that's, <laughs> that's so unique. And that is not happening anywhere today. No, it doesn't happen anymore. It's, it's, it's inconvenient and it's not comfortable. So I think we, we avoid those things today and we've got a lot of ways to avoid them that are, that are easy to do. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty special in that respect. Um, I still have all those pictures. It's pretty great. It also probably created some really unique bond between you two for yeah. you to be having this experience and him being like, he's the only one, right? I put up a picture on Instagram or Facebook. If I'm traveling, the whole world sees it. There's not like any, yeah, that he had this, he was the only one and he could share them, but he also didn't have to. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So he would share them with my family and uh, I think he shared them with my girlfriend at the time, but that, but that was it. And, you know, they would sit around and say, Oh my goodness, we got a package from Mark. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, they go to the drugstore, get it, you know, developed a good day. You know, it's just like that all that, that whole experience was uh, now it's rather novel back then. It was what we had. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, um, yeah. We, and it was funny because I, my emails were relatively limited um, uh, because at the time it was both expensive and, you know, not easy to find in some of those countries. But uh, 
but I would basically in the emails, let them know I'm okay. And here's where I've been. And here's where I'm thinking I'm headed. Love you. Bye. Because, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of bandwidth quite literally for, for much more than that. <laughs> um, and that was, uh, that was special. So yeah, the photos and some things I bought, like I bought some souvenirs or trinkets or things like that. And things that I traded with local people, um, artwork, in fact, that I found bought too, like that I, I shipped back as well. So he's getting all the stuff. And it's sort of like the, the artifacts of my trip uh, that he gets to see with a slight time lag, which is pretty cool. So what happened next? You got back, you did, you, how many countries did you go to? Oh, the number, I don't know. Let me tell you, i tell you what they were. I can remember them sure. off the top of my head. I went from Nepal um, to, I'm sorry, I went from Fiji to New Zealand, New Zealand to Indonesia, and from Indonesia to Thailand, Vietnam, and Burma. And then I went to Nepal. And from there, I was in Kenya and Tanzania, and I wrapped up in South Africa. Uh, and then from there, I, I flew home through Amsterdam, where I had some friends that um that I had worked with years prior and those are the first familiar faces I'd seen in uh, about 11 and a half months at that point um so those are the countries I went to and I spent I would say on average about uh five or six weeks in each place was there any when you got back before we go to like what happened next like what was the next big kind of dream you created when you got back, was there any like one or two things that people were like, this is distinctly different about you? Yeah. You know, um, people said that I seemed happier and more present. Um, I seemed different. There was a calmness about me, I think, or some of the things that I remember people saying to me, uh, and it's funny because I moved back and I moved right back to New York and <clears throat> was um, living with a girlfriend at the time. And that was not, it, I really didn't feel comfortable there anymore. It's really interesting. Like I, my, the, the sense of, of my, of home being inside me combined with that sense of peace and, and joy really didn't match with, uh, with my experience of being in New York at the time. And so that, those are some of the things I, I, I seem both peaceful, but uh, I think if you, my girlfriend at the time would have probably said, I also seemed unsettled like that. I, I wasn't comfortable back in that familiar place anymore. I've been in, think about it. I've been in completely un, unfamiliar environment, not knowing anybody for a year um, where I couldn't even read the signs. And here I was back in this place that I'd lived for 30 years or 28 years at the time. And I, uh, it was hard just being known and um, knowing the place and the familiarity was actually interestingly uncomfortable. <laughs> so that was uh, that was my coming back experience. So then you created a new dream, right? Yeah, I, I you know I'd always had you know my coach came back and my coach was like, okay, so what's next? And I was like, well, I, I don't feel like New York is for me anymore. Uh, I really feel like it's time to to, to, to try something else. And I, I, I had worked in an office and I'd, you know, I'd traveled around the world by now and I, I'd always wanted to work outdoors and I'd always wanted to be really good at snowboarding. And I growing up in Brooklyn. It was something that I'd tried once or twice, but I was never really good at it. Um, I was like, you know, I always want to be good at that. So 
um, he challenged me, <laughs> challenged me once again. So where and by when? So I, I declared that I was going to move to Vermont and be a snowboard instructor. And uh, within three months, you know, it's just random thing. He challenged me. You know, he's one of these things where he was great at as a coach at having not letting you off the hook with the things that you um, that you declared. And so I ended up moving, and I moved to Vermont. I became a snowboard instructor, and I lived up here. I live in Vermont now, but I lived up here for four years. Um, and I became a level three snowboard instructor and that that's like the highest level snowboard instructor. And I ran instructor school at Killington for a while for kids. And there was a, so I was teaching instructors to teach kids snowboarding. So I really did exactly what I said I wanted to do. I've got about as good as I was going to get at that. Um, and that was my, <laughs> that was my next dream. And then while I was there, I was doing some, you know, in the summers when there was no snow, I was, uh, doing a little bit of real estate investing. I bought a, I bought a house up here that was really run down. I, um, I worked with a friend of mine who was really good at uh, rehabbing houses. Uh, we renovated it and he said, you know, um, if you want to make a business out of this, I'll teach you how to do it. He taught me how to do it. And then, so the next challenge was to actually start a business um, as a real estate investor. And so in 04, I started that and ended up moving to Baltimore in 2004 because at the time um, I was still single and uh, I had a dog. Uh, it was me and my dog. No, so I didn't have a whole lot of things tying me to, to Vermont anymore. And I moved to Baltimore because it was the hottest real estate market in the country at the time. And, uh, and for the next four years, uh, made a great living and built this business as a real estate investor right up until 2008 when that didn't go so well anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's just so much in your story. And one of the things I mean, I've learned from you is like, you say you're going to do something and you do it and it mm -hmm. doesn't occur. Like, you know, we could come up with all the reasons why I shouldn't move to Baltimore, why I shouldn't be a snowboard instructor or the head snowboard instructor or even leave New York. And it doesn't, it just occurs like you, no matter how it went, you said, Hey, I'm going to do this thing. And obviously you got supported and there were other factors that played a support to help you do it, but you just did the things that you said you were going to do. Yeah. 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 It's, it was, it was a lot of support though, from that coach um, to do so in the trip, you know, that trip, that first challenge, it, um, it really opened up the, the, the value of, of saying I'm going to do something and doing it. So I was, I was as driven, um, you know, as anybody in, in those situations, it was just a matter of overcoming my fear or any of that hesitation and resistance. And, well, I got to wait till it's comfortable. And that's what I had the coach for. And he really helped me with that part. He's like, you know, Hey, it's not going to be comfortable. So how about now? <laughs> and uh, he was really good at that. So I, yeah, there was a lot of me saying, I'm going to do this. And that sounds outlandish. It sounds unreasonable. It sounds, you know, you know, at the time that I moved to Vermont, I was 29 or 30. And that's the kind of thing that, a, you know, an 18 year old does is, you know, goes and moves to, to someplace and goes to be a snowboard instructor. <laughs> so I had a lot of those stories and narratives in my head, but it's like, Hey, wait, if this is a dream of mine, why wouldn't I? And the trip taught me that lesson. So you know, there was not, there wasn't that same barrier that there would have been otherwise. Can we, can we pivot a little bit? Cause I want to, I really want to touch on, and I don't want to miss it and run out of time. Uh, the conversation around you actually 
having a shift in your relationship to the idea of marriage. And I'm going to, I'm going to pose both of these and we can just organically see how we fall into them. Okay. And also the breakthroughs and what you've created around masculinity and leadership and, yes. and how vulnerability ties into that. I somehow sure. see all these things somehow being connected, but I'm not really sure what the direct line is. So I don't know. Let's see what, what, what do you, what can you share from that? Well, I mean, the, the breakthrough in, in, in relationship and really around marriage in particular, um, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a loving household. My parents loved us, but they, uh, they divorced early. And so I didn't have, and they weren't, um, it wasn't a happy divorce. <laughs> and so I didn't have a, a model of marriage that had me in any way excited about it. So I, I was very happily single. And I remember in even in my twenties and late twenties and early thirties being asked about, Hey, do you ever think you'll get married? And really being clear, I wasn't going to, it just didn't make sense. I didn't have the evidence for it. Um, but you know, in working with a coach, the real breakthrough came in getting clear that that was just another thing that I was relating to as an impossible dream. He, cause he asked me, Hey, do you, do you want this? And I was like, I think I do, but I I've talked about not wanting it because it seems like such a bad idea from all the evidence I'd had that I kind of let go of wanting it. Even I stopped talking about it like something I wanted, but that connection and depth of love and commitment is something that I really did want. I just hadn't been talking about it that way in so long that I'd forgotten or didn't really remember uh, or didn't really, didn't really know even at that point. So the breakthrough was in relating to, you know, being married and being in a successful relationship as a dream of mine, not just something I should do. Right. I think a lot I think some people resist marriage because it's something they feel like they should do, but I, I really was clear that this was something that I should do. This is something I wanted. And that was the big breakthrough for me. And now there's something I want. Oh, and go create it. I just, I met this guy on, you know, on Sunday, I was sitting at the beach and I was reading and this guy sits next to me and strikes up a conversation. So mm-hmm. one of those people that, you know, is supposed to like, you were supposed to talk to him and he was, supposed <laughs> to talk to him. yeah. And we got into what I do, what we do. And he said, listen, I, I know all this makes sense when it comes to goals. And, and to him, goals were, uh, I want to say like goals, like as a society, we accept, like how much money I'm going to make, how I'm going to get a promotion, how I'm going to lose weight. But he specifically went, but this doesn't work when it comes to relationships. And uh-huh. I kind of chuckled and I went, that's interesting because why not? Why can't we say, hey, I'm going to go create a marriage or I'm going to go create this and kind of play by the same rules. That's yeah. that same game of actually declaring it, figuring out, yeah. really deciding what it is. And then looking for those specific things. You know, I, I said to him, and, and maybe you can point to how it shifted for you. If you know you want somebody spiritual, but you hang out in bars, <laughs> and look, it's not to say that spiritual people don't ever go right. to a bar, but the likelihood, your, your odds are probably reduced. Yes. It might be better to go to a drum circle or yoga class or somewhere with those types of people. Those are the practices to get you to the thing you want. What did you change when you decided, hey, I do want to get married and now I'm creating it? What was like the biggest shift? Well, I mean, the biggest shift is, is the thing you just said, that I was really clear that I wanted this. Because look, the, the real litmus test for whether you want to be in a, a committed relationship or not is if you are spending time in places where committed relationships possible. <laughs> So 
you know, the first thing was really getting clear that, hey, this is what I want. And here's who I want to be with. I want to be with somebody who's responsible and mature and, you know, and, and actually has dreams of her own and uh, and is, is independent and such. So I had, to, I had to actually start first with knowing that that's really what I wanted, like for real. Then start spending time in the place where that person might be. And so it really had to stem from me first knowing that I wanted it so clearly in a successful and healthy relationship so clearly. Um, and that then from there, it was clear where I needed to go in order to start spending time trying to meet that person. So it wasn't magical. Uh, it wasn't anything much, much bigger than really just knowing that, hey, here's the thing I want and I really want it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that well, we say it's not magical because I'm with you on that. I think, and I think you would agree with me. There's the universe or God or whatever it is that, you know, you believe in or whoever listening is believes in it, it, it kind of, we put ourselves in that space and, and there's, that's, there's something that happens magically in that, that that person is there, yes. but the, it's all based on choice, right? Cause you wouldn't even be in that space if it weren't for the choices you made. Yeah. Yeah. What about, you know, something that, that I, that you've, I mean, you've introduced a lot of, well, I shouldn't say introduced, you've actually had me see what powerful masculine leadership can look like in a completely new paradigm, which stems around heart and vulnerability. Mm. I don't have a specific question, but I guess I do. What I, I kind of know, I, I think that it wasn't always like that for you that you actually have created this. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't always like that for me. Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think I learned that until um, much later in life. In fact, probably the last few years um, that, that vulnerability is, is access to power, especially in relationship. Um, I I think especially having gotten married and being willing to be vulnerable in my marriage with my wife um, taught me the value of it. <clears throat> and then in leadership, you know, specifically around my own masculinity, um, as a leader, um, the value of, of my transparency and my vulnerability in the teams I lead became apparent. I got, I kept getting feedback from people that they want to see more of that. And that is not at all what I imagined people wanted. People wanted results and I was good at producing results. So let me just keep doing that. Um, and then I had breakthroughs recently, just in, and by the way, these, these breakthroughs keep happening. They've happened for, for, for me over the past, you know, 15, 20 years of this work. Um, I think the most recent ones have been around my partnership with co-leaders um, at Accomplishment Coaching as, you know, as a program leader at Accomplishment Coaching, where we were required to produce results and partner um, and really taking those partnerships into the realm of relationship where there's real love and connection and respect, but also, you know, friendship <laughs> and, and the, and breakthroughs around partnering inside of a uh, of friendship and relationship and having that be the basis for partnership was really new. And that meant being transparent and vulnerable and open and connected with people that you work with, which is risky, right? I mean, you know, it's not, um, it's not something that we're taught to do, especially as men. So 
that is a breakthrough that I, I say, you know, I had parts of and will continue to have. <laughs> and I don't think any of that is really over. And I'm really clear that the, the only question in, in the world right now is which one is next? What breakthrough is next? What's the biggest thing that, and let me ask this different, actually. How do you, how do we take the, the leadership that we have, you know, we could say in our states and our cities in our country, you know, we don't, there's, there's no vulnerability in it right now in the, in the current moment, it occurs like there is no vulnerability. It is all ego driven and power driven. And cause I said, so driven basically is how it occurs for, you know, in a lot of ways, how do we, how do we actually even get to a place where, cause it seems like we're in the complete opposite of vulnerability in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. How do we even get there? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think you have to have people reinvent the relationship, their relationship to power, um, really reinvent their relationship to what leadership even means. Uh, I think an, an old paradigm of leadership meant uh, a, leader, a leader who could impart influence and control over groups of followers and get them to do things. You know, that was really a force-based power dynamic or hierarchical even. Um, you know, leadership from vulnerability in a new paradigm might look like causing leadership in others, actually creating leaders around you as a leader. My experience as, a, as an executive coach and, and working with teams and organizations is that this is the most effective model of leadership nowadays is, you know, a leader who's savvy enough to know that, that control and influence isn't, uh, it has a ceiling on it with regards to what you can get people to produce. Um, so, I think it has to involve knowing that vulnerability is a key component to creating leadership in that new paradigm that, you know, people have to see me as human. (laughs) So as to want to be a leader also that inhuman leader that works 80 hours a week, isn't going to attract everybody. And, you know, who's perfect and doesn't let anybody in is going to put people off because they can't be that perfect and don't want to be. And so the leader who's willing to be human and share their humanity, who's willing to be vulnerable and share their vulnerability, vulnerability to, to actually connect, uh, perhaps even intimately, right? And, and, and it doesn't mean romantically. That means, you know, even just sharing vulnerably what's going on is an intimate conversation. But that's a, that's a part of the new paradigm of leadership where you can create other leaders around you as leaders. And I think that's the thing that would change our environment currently. Uh, it would change the way people relate to leaders at the highest levels of government um, from that all the way down to teachers and police officers and activists and newscasters and all that stuff. Like all those relationships to people as leaders would change and require authenticity and vulnerability because those people are committed to relating to the people they're talking to as leaders too. And that's not how it usually goes. I think that, you know, a lot of times now you hear, you see leaders speak and they're not speaking as though they're speaking to other leaders. They're speaking as though they're they're speaking to followers, and and that's where I think uh, we're we've we've got room to grow, to say the least. Yeah, I was as you say it. I'm like thinking of every social media platform. We we talk to our people as followers, which is really yes. Yes. Exactly. I don't think and I don't think it's intended to be the way that way, but it's a uh, language is powerful. Yeah. Um, hey, I want to respect your time. I know we had, do you have a, do we have like five more minutes? We do. 
Okay, cool. Uh, let's, I want to hit you with some like kind of rapid fire questions. All right. <laughs> um, I won't cut you off, but just what do you, what actually are you, what's the big dream now? Uh, good question. Well, I mean, it's becoming a parent. I, you know, the, the big dream now is becoming a dad. It's really what's next for me. And um, really, really clear that that's what has my wife and I on the same page now um, with, uh, with wanting to start a family is, uh, is knowing that that's my dream. And it's also her dream to be a parent too. I have a dream for you. I'm going to share it. You don't have to do it, but I might challenge you. Um, <laughs> hey, when, when, when am I or somebody going to be able to like vote for you in some political arena? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. You know, I've, I've toyed with that. I don't, uh, I don't know the answer to that question, but, um, but I appreciate the challenge and I will look, you know, I live in a, I live <laughs> in Vermont now where, where politics are quite easily accessible. So um, it's something that I've been I've been challenged around recently as well. So I'll, I'll take a look and get back to you. <laughs> when I was I, I didn't I know you didn't know, think I would ask you that or even maybe suspect it, but as I was thinking about this conversation over the weekend and how I wanted to talk about it, it was the thing that kept coming up for me. It was like, why is uh-huh. why is Mark not in politics? Because it just seems it your ability as a leader and where you come from as a leader, it just seems like a no brainer this whole podcast is based around dreams. What would it, what advice would you give somebody that's stuck and actually afraid to chase a dream that they know they have? You know, I think the first thing would be to, to relate to themselves as normal, that they're stuck and scared. (laughs) That is a, that's a, that defines everybody who's on the cusp of of some dream. Uh, So I think a lot of times when we get to that place, we feel like we're alone and nobody else understands. And the thing I would start out with is having the person understand and know that they're not alone and that, um, that there are people out there who do understand. And probably most of us really understand. Uh, the, the other piece of advice would be to not stop. You know, I think that, that on some level, all these things are achieved by some version or some level of simply not stopping. Like, I'm about to stop here and I'm not going to, and I'm about to stop here and I'm not going to. And I think that's another piece of advice that I would give them. And I think lastly would be to have them, have them, um, have somebody that they're talking to about this. It's not going to buy into their stories about how impossible it all is. You know, you can, any, any one of us can go find the people that we can convince that it's impossible to do this thing. And it's not a good idea. Find the people who it's going to be impossible to convince that you shouldn't do this. Uh, you know, the, maybe that's a coach. Maybe it's somebody who's a really good friend of yours who knows your um, your stories and your strategies inside and out and is, is unwilling to let you off the hook. So, but you got to have somebody like that outside of yourself because your voice in your head, uh, that voice is loud and it talks all the time. <laughs> yeah. What about somebody who doesn't is like, I know it's not working, but I don't know what my dream is. Like, I don't know what I really want. What advice would you give them? That's a good question. You know, I, I relate to what you really want as a choice now. So what I would say to that person is start with the, I don't know what I really want story and choose what they want rather than waiting for, you know, some, um, some epiphany to hit them, uh, but actually choose something like, here's what I say I want and then stick with it. 
Because if you wait around for the perfect thing to want to hit you in the face, you're waiting around for a long time. Uh, so that's the advice I would have is choose what you want. And once you choose what you want and you really jump into it uh, and you really own it as the thing you want, then it becomes a lot easier to start making decisions around it. I noticed that once I said I'm going to travel around the world and owned it as my choice, the things that I made happen thereafter were pretty amazing. So it's not not predictable that those things would have happened otherwise. So I would say choose. We didn't talk a lot about your book, but what's the, uh, what's the name of it? Where can people, can people go get it on Amazon? Is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's called the brink, how great leadership is invented. It is on Amazon. It's also uh, on my website, thebrinkbook.com, all one word. And it's uh, yeah. So that's where, that's where people can get it. And it's really a, a culmination of the work I've done with, uh, with leaders in the world over the past uh, 20 years or so. And some of the components to leadership that I noticed were most common in those successful leaders that I worked with. Uh, so it's not a, here are the 10 things you, that you should do to be a leader, but it's, it's, a, it's a group of ingredients that people can use as tools to invent leadership in the way it's needed moment to moment. Do you have any great recommendations for people on, you know, some, when it comes to building or chasing a dream, some books some media, anything that you would say, Hey, you should read this or listen to this or watch this. You know, I think that the thing I would say to that is would be to watch the thing that inspires you and, and don't be afraid to be inspired by things that seem big and outlandish and impossible. Those things that feel impossible are probably the place that are uh, the places that where, where the most uh, most value is going to lie and the most possibilities lie going to lie for you. Uh, there are some books I like. I like uh, I like books by Simon Sinek. Um, you know, there are some uh, you know there are some some tools that he has specifically uh, the Start with Why book where he has you start with knowing why you're doing something before you get into how or or what. And I think that's a, a great place to start in terms of chasing dreams. Yeah, his Why Leaders Eat Last is, I think, one of my favorite books. Yes. Yeah, great one. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. It was one of the first books I read when I started reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad it was that one because it definitely opened me up to to want to read more books like that and, and just learn more. It's it, it just got my mind churning. Nice. Nice. Mark, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I know, you know, it's, we say this all the time when we work together, it's like, you didn't have to, you, you know, I asked you to come on the podcast. You were, you, you said yes right away. We got to have a great conversation and I got to learn so much more about you than, you know, we've spent hours together in, in leadership work, in our coaching work, but I got to probably learn more about you specifically who you are in that conversation and even more in this one. Um, Thanks for just being a, a man in, in with that has a ton of integrity that models leadership and vulnerability so powerfully that, that it's done in a way that I, that I have it where another man can put down his ego and his masculinity, like the traditional forms, and actually see the value in it. So thanks for modeling that so powerfully that I'm practicing it and I can bring it to other people and, and I have it that anyone that works with you sees it. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it was great having you here on. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I appreciate the conversation we had. It was great. Thank you. And, 
And is there any, if people want to reach out to you, is there anything that, is there a, a website or a, a way that yes. you? Yeah. Best way to, to reach out is uh, through my website. The, uh, the, the website is pinnacle-coaching.net. And awesome. my email address is mark, M-A-R-K, at pinnacle-coaching.net. Awesome. I will throw all that up in the coach notes or in the coach notes in the, uh, in the, the, the podcast notes for anybody that wants it. Hey, thanks again, Mark. Really Thank appreciate you, Alex. it. It was a pleasure. Thank you for checking out the dream Mason podcast. Whether you're a longtime listener or just taking a peek, I am grateful to have you here. Please tag a friend who needs to hear this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and give us a review if you like what you heard. If you want more, you can follow me, Alex Terranova, on Instagram at inspirationalalex, at thedreammason.com, or email me at alex at thedreammason.com. Remember, you are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.